Father, you, <clears throat> Father, you know our weaknesses. You know our frame. You remember that we are dust. And yet, in your loving kindness, you have sought to fulfill your plan. Spirit and the Son has been um, enacted. Christ has come. The Son has come. He has lived a perfect life. He has died a horrific death. But he has been raised in a glorious resurrection. And we get to remember that and celebrate that, not just next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday, every day. We open up your word. We have it unfolded to us, and it, and it's, and it shouts to us, proclaims to us the victory of Christ and the victory of those who are in Christ as well. And for those of us, Lord, who are here today who know you by faith, adopted, beloved sons and daughters, so we may not always feel that way. That is a biblical truth and reality that you intend for us to know and to embrace and to live out with great joy purpose until the day that we are finally united with you for eternity. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in our weakness, help us to live lives of humility, help us to live lives that are, that are grounded in the scriptures, intent on glorifying you, that it's trusting in you in every season. And I pray that our time now as we open up your word, Lord, is a time where <clears throat> you would speak. I don't think anybody in this room has a desire to hear from me, Lord. Their desire is to hear from you as your words spring out of the scriptures. And so that's my prayer that you would do that. Be pleased, Lord, to do that today, to illuminate our, our thinking and our understanding of you and your word for your glory for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are, we're going to be in Romans again today, continuing our sermon series through Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. We'll take a brief break next week as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday together. Um, but today we want to continue on. It is Palm Sunday, the Sunday where we do acknowledge our victorious king and his entrance into Jerusalem. It wasn't that long ago that we preached this passage in Luke, Jesus' triumphal entry, fulfilling the office of prophet, priest, and king. And we got to celebrate that in our time together. Um, but just being mindful of that reality today of being Palm Sunday. But we are going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24 this morning. As I was um, thinking about an appropriate sermon title for this, my daily devotion last Thursday was in Proverbs chapter 30. I read a proverb a day. I think it's a wonderful practice for everybody. And Proverbs chapter 30 last um, Thursday brought me to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, which says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but not washed of their filth. And I thought, man, what an appropriate title for what we're going to be talking about today in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but they're not washed of their filth. Isn't that a, is, wouldn't that be an awful reality for anybody to think that in their own minds they're clean, 
but really, in the eyes of the Lord, they're not washed of their filth. They stand before him as still being in their sin, caught in their sin, guilty of their sin and their transgressions. And that's a perfect thing for us to consider as we're looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, because Paul, he has established this courtroom scene. He has brought in all the elements. He's brought in sin. He's brought in righteousness, the innocence. He's brought in justification as being declared not guilty. He's brought in the accusations. Um, And today he's specifically making a laser beam focus indictment to the Jews for what it is that they had in the gift of God and the Mosaic law, and yet... They didn't do anything with it to themselves. They, they looked at the law of God that was given to them, as we will read, and how Paul defines it, which he defines it correctly. But they took this law that God had given to them and never once considered how it was good for their own personal spiritual formation. They always saw it as something that was good for everybody else but not for them. And it created this tremendous attitude of pride. Their egos just swelled and their their formalism to the Mosaic law was blinded them to the God that had given that to them. And they then assumed the position of, um, well, we're the teachers. God's given us the law and we're the teachers. We have everything right. And now everybody else, you guys are the students. Let us assume the position of teacher and superior and everyone else, all of you guys. You're the learners. You're the students. Just sit down and be quiet and take what we have to to give to you. And they never once considered the law of God, the truth that God had revealed to them personally for their own spiritual formation and good. And... It's my desire today that nobody, not one of us, would walk out of this room today with that same mentality or that same attitude. As you come to the Word, we would all be mindful of who the real teacher is. Where does truth come from? And whether or not you're really, are you really subjected to it? You know, do you read the Word and are you, do you come under it? Do you yield and submit to its truthfulness and its authority? Or do you, just, you, do you just see it as something that you've really mastered and you're really good at and, and you're just waiting for the next opportunity you have to teach someone else about these wonderful truths that you learned? Do you ever teach yourself from the Scriptures? That's my prayer. That for today, for each and every one of us today, that we would see the Word of God as being the authority and we would see ourselves as being the students and we would yield. Each and every one of us would cultivate a heart for yielding to the truth of God's Word and embracing it and submitting to it and thus exalting the author of it. So let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, and then we'll work our way through it. Paul's continuing on his argument here, and he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God 
and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in, who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Man, what an awful place to be in. You have the truth. You don't do anything with it for yourself. It's always for other people. And therefore, you do the things that you condemn in other people that they do. I mean, the root, the, the, the hypocrisy, the pride that Paul is fleshing out here is convicting, to say the least. Because they failed to teach themselves as he brings his indictment to the Jews, because they failed to teach themselves neglect of their own inner spiritual formation, they, bought, they brought blasphemy on the name of God. I oftentimes pray, much to the chagrin probably of my wife and my kids, Lord, take me home before I would do anything that would disgrace your name. I would rather go home to be with the Lord than to do anything that would bring him dishonor and shame. And I think that that um, should be the heart desire of every believer, is that we, the last thing that we would want to do is to dishonor the Lord, to have his name blasphemed by others because they see the hypocrisy in our conduct. Paul has mentioned hypocrisy already and the problem of it in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, so that's connected easily to this passage. I oftentimes wonder, how can you have two Christians with the same, that hold the same exact theology, and yet you see one live a life faithful to the end and to the Lord, and yet you see another one who drifts off into apostasy? How can you have two people that know the same stuff, espouse the same beliefs, and yet over time you see one fall away, go into the ways of the world, denounce Christ, leave the church, and you see one remain faithful to the end? Obviously all of this is within the sovereign providence of our God, but I guarantee you the one who is attempting and trying to remain faithful, daily attended to their own spiritual formation and to the issues of their heart. They didn't just see themselves as being a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. They knew they were blind and they knew they were in the dark. Therefore, they needed the truth of God's word to shine upon their heart regularly as it beamed forth the majesty and the beauty of the triune God seen most clearly in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'm telling you, if, if the gospel message or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work ever grows old to you, you must do all that you can to remedy that problem. Immediately. Don't put it off. And so we want to look at how do we ad- daily attend to our own hearts. He would begin in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law and boast in God. It's interesting, he, in verse 17, he begins with the word but. It's to contrast the, with the Gentiles that he's just spoken of in verses 14, 15, and 16. But he, it's, I, as I was reading through this, I asked myself the question, why doesn't he just say, but if you're a Jew? Why does he say, but if you call yourself a Jew. What are, you, what are you implying to somebody when you say to them, you call yourself a good husband? What's the next word you're waiting to hear? But you call yourself a good friend. You call yourself a good student. You call yourself someone who has integrity and uprightness. What are they implying? But you're not really. And I think what he's doing here is he's setting himself up for verses 25 through 29, which we'll get there in a couple weeks. Who is a true Jew? You call yourself a Jew, but he's going to define for us who a real, who the true Jew is when we get to verses 25 through 29. But he says to them, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, this word rely, it has the connotation of rest. To it. You call yourself a Jew and you're relying upon the law. You're resting in the law. I mean, there's a lot of things in my life that I rely upon to varying degrees. I rely upon there being milk for my cereal in the morning. I rely on there being creamer for my coffee. I really relied on the fact that our car wasn't going to be stolen when it was left in long-term parking in the, uh, at the airport for a week. I was like really hoping our car was still going to be there. I was really relying upon the airplane that we were flying in from Denver back to Sacramento to not crash. And I rely upon things to a varying degree, and I rest in those things to a varying degree, probably in that order. I would much rather wake up and not have creamer for my coffee than to have the plane I'm sitting in go down. But I don't rely and I don't rest upon any of those things ultimately. I rely and I rest upon one thing, one person, ultimately. And that's the person in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that my entrance into heaven is based solely upon his work and nothing that I have done. I'm resting in that. That's the idea has, this word has the idea of relying and resting upon to cease from doing something in order to be refreshed. You think about the relying upon and resting upon the law. The thing that continuously commands them to work is what they're seeking to, to receive rest from. The law says, do, do, do. Christ says, says, I have done. The law says, you do, you must do. We've talked about this over and over again. Personal, perpetual, perfect obedience is what the law demands and they're resting upon 
for their salvation, they're resting upon something that commands for them to always do more, more, more. What a foolish thing to rest your hope upon. This is why Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's only one place to find true rest. It's not upon the law of God. The law of God is good and perfect. We will see this as we continue to work through Romans. It's not like the law is the bad guy. The law is good. It is doing what God wants for it to do. The problem is that as sinful mankind, we look to the law, we look to that which tells us to do, 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 and we seek to find rest from it like the Jews did rather than looking to Christ. And that's why the gospel message is so wonderfully incredible because it says, come to me and you don't do. By faith, you believe in what I have done and you rest. And in him, you find rest for your soul. You find salvation, you find redemption, you find peace and comfort and all these other wonderful blessings and promises that spring forth from the person of Christ as you have your salvation rooted and found in him. Verses 17 through 20 give us a description of the Jew. Verses 17 and 18 describing their identity. If you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, you approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And then 19 and 20 tell us what they do. You are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And these two things biblically always go together. Your identity and your activity, the things that you do, are always intimately tied together. And because they saw themselves in light of a special, uh, a special light of God's favor, receiving the law, they assume then the position of teacher of the law and never students, never receiving and never um, attending to their own heart formation. Paul would speak of this in Philippians 3 in a very personal and realistic way because this was him, if you're familiar with Philippians chapter 3. He knew what he was talking about because this was him. He used to live and operate this way. But I want to draw our attention specifically to verse 19, something that the Jews are doing that reveals how they see themselves. He says in verse 19, if you, sh- if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. I don't find it any coincidence that in Isaiah chapter 42, that this is exactly how the Lord's chosen servant is described. Isaiah chapter 42, talking about the Lord's chosen servant who is Christ, says this, he will be given as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah is looking forward. He, the one that he is describing is the Christ, not himself. He knows that it's another who's going to come and do this. The Jews, when they read Isaiah 42, they think us. 
We are the ones. We are the ones who are going to come and open the eyes of the blind for the nations. We're going to bring the prisoners out of the dungeon. We're going to bring those prisoners out who sit in darkness. That's us. We're going to do that. That was their first mistake. They kept looking to themselves and never to the one who was actually going to do it. Isaiah didn't look to himself. He, lo- he was looking to Christ. The Jews, as they read this, they should have been looking to the Christ, not themselves. And I think there's a lot for us to learn here, brothers and sisters. We should never be looking to ourselves, pointing to ourselves, but always pointing people to Christ. Point yourself to Christ. You think that you are an instructor to the blind? You think that you are a light to those who are sitting in darkness? Brothers and sisters, that is not talking about us. I mean, to a degree, for those of us who are in Christ, we want to be a light to the world. But that passage is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ as Isaiah looked forward to him coming. And Paul is looking, and he also is saying, You guys think that's you. It's not you, it's him. And you're constantly pointing to yourself. I tell you what, my prayer is that no one would ever be pointing to this church, talking about how great North Hills is. Now, this is the place, I, and I say that, I think, this is the, I think this is the best church. I do, and it has nothing to do with me. But we are not like the end-all, be-all. I don't know if you all knew that or not. We should always, we exist to see Christ exalted and lives transformed, to point to Christ. That's why we exist. I preach on Sunday morning to exalt Christ. We have men's ministry to exalt Christ, women's ministry to exalt Christ, children's ministry, counseling ministry. Everything that we have is, we just go, man, how many different ways can we exalt Christ? Let's just do things that do that. That's what we want to do. Always pointing to him. The Jews, they miss that completely. Churches, believers all over the world are missing that completely. Seeking to make much of themselves and their own ministries, building their little empires, tearing down their barns and building bigger barns. What a foolish waste of time. Do those things that are going to last for eternity. Make much of him. Verse 21 being really one of the main descriptors of the Jews and people who have this mentality. People who teach others and never themselves. See themselves as something special. Pride and ego are problematic. Their inflated view of self causes them to have a sense of superiority over others. Always teaching, never learning. Always selling, never buying. You ever talk to people like that? Totally ignoring Proverbs 23, 23 that encourages us to buy truth, buy wisdom, buy knowledge. Encouraging you to be a spender and spend big. Just in the right areas. These people have, uh, uh, who never teach them, right? You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? 
you who think that you've got it all together, got all the answers, can't wait to share with others what you know. Do you ever teach yourself? Are you, do, are you, I mean, the first, you know, the first person is who gets to hear the sermon from every Sunday? Me. And if I'm not listening, then I'm guilty of doing what he's accusing them of doing, hypocrisy. How could I dare stand up here and say, you all need to do all this stuff. Don't worry about me. I'm just going to, you know, retreat back into my hole in the wall of the office over there with my books. This is for all of us. If you're a teacher, if you've been given the gift of teaching or preaching and you have that opportunity and you use it, I pray for you. I pray that you would use that gift with humility. I pray that you would use that gift training yourself to take your eyes off of yourself and lay them upon Christ. This is good for all of us, not just for the teachers. The truth of God's word is never just for them. It's always for you as well. I, can't, I was thinking about this a lot this week. And I was asking myself a few questions. How do you teach yourself? How do you teach yourself? I mean, what does one do? I don't want to just be a teacher of others. I want to teach myself as well, and that applies to all of us. I don't want to just share with others what I'm learning in God's word. I want to share it with myself. I want to preach to myself. I want to teach myself. How do you do that? In Proverbs 4, verse 23, which is familiar probably to many of you, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guarding your heart, is an essential work. John Flavel says heart, heart work is the hardest work. But the context of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 is helpful to us. Beginning in verse 20, he says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Who's speaking? The Lord. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. How do you guard your heart? How do you keep your heart with all vigilance? By the word of God. Receiving his word, storing in his word, taking his word and embracing his word. How do you teach yourself you first open up your Bible, you begin to read your Bible, and you internalize your Bible, and you're looking at yourself to see how does the text apply to you? What is God speaking to you about? And you guard what you allow in. You let in the truth, and you keep out the lies. But there is something necessary to do so, as I was thinking about that. And again, Scripture tells us what is necessary in order to be able to teach ourselves and guard our hearts. And foundationally, what, is, what must be present is a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8, 13 tells us the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. 
You can't discern right and wrong. You can't discern good or bad. You can't discern what's going to come into the heart and what needs to be kept out of the heart without a proper fear of the Lord because with the fear of the Lord becomes the, then comes the objective standard of what is right and good in his eyes, not mine. What is right and good in his eyes, not the culture's. And what the, when he says is good, I embrace, I bring in, bring it in, bring it in. Let me chew on it. Let me read it. Let me know it. Let me believe it. Let me live it. Let me love it. Those things that, the, but that he disapproves of, approve of, let me hate, let me get rid of, let me jettison, let me divorce myself from those things. The fear of the Lord, that is what's going to do that. How do you teach yourself? You guard your heart. How do you guard your heart? You have a fear of the Lord that tells you what is good and pleasing and right in his sight and what is not. And you live, you seek to live accordingly. What does the one who teach themselves do? You come to Christ daily, hungry and thirsty, but you do, as Colossians 3, 5 says, you put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I guarantee you, as you begin to attend to the genuine spiritual formation of your own heart, you're going to find things that are earthly in you. What are you going to do with that stuff? You just, you know, like try and put it in a bag and move it to the side. Like scripture tells you to put it to death. You look at what is earthly within you and, and, you, and you see that it's not pleasing to the Lord and you seek to, to put it to death, not entertain it, not just put it aside. To put it to death. And then I, I asked myself the question, well, then what should one teach themselves? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives us a comprehensive answer. So we, when he went to the church in Corinth in chapter 2, verse 2, he decided to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. What do you teach others? What do you teach yourself? the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, he's not only good for missions, but he's also, Paul will, as Paul will go on to say, the wisdom from God. So the mature as well teach themselves about Christ. As you're guarding your heart, you're attending to the own spiritual formation of your heart, you're not just a teacher to others, you're teaching yourself, you're guarding your heart, you're, you're pursuing that, uh, doing that from a fear of the Lord. And you're constantly reminding yourself of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes everything. Everything is, I mean, think of all the problems that the church in Corinth had, if you're familiar with that letter. What was Paul's, like, solution to all of them? The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have taken, you know the reason why you're suing each other, law, Christians? You know the reason why this guy is sleeping with his dad's wife? You want to know the reason why you don't understand the spiritual gifts and your church is all crazy? You want to understand you, all of that? All of those things and every other problem? You've taken your eyes off of Christ. You began to make church about something else that God had never intended it to be about. The church is the bride of Christ. 
The church is intended to, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, to point back to her husband all the time, perpetually, in everything that we do. And the moment that any church, any believer, takes their eyes off of Christ, you begin to exalt and magnify something else. And he becomes eclipsed. He gets pushed to the wayside. And your life will spiral out of control. I guarantee it. May not, may not immediately happen right away, but it will happen. If you do not return back to addressing your own spiritual formation and health, pursue him and set your eyes back upon Christ. And the benefits of doing so, the benefits of attending to your own heart, Henry Skogel says, it makes us partake in divine happiness and helps us find sweetness in every dispensation. Man, those are two things that sound really good. Like, I want that. To be a partaker of divine happiness and sweetness in every season of life. Can you do that? Like, is your happiness and your sweetness of life dependent upon your circumstances and your situation? Or are they dependent, are they fixed upon Christ? And him being your treasure. Again, John Flavel would say, the comfort of our souls much depends on upon keeping the heart. He that is negligent in attending to his own heart is ordinarily a great stranger to assurance and the comforts following from it. If, you're, if you feel like you're estranged from the comforts that come in Christ, the happiness that come in knowing Christ, the the knowledge and, and the reality of enjoying Christ, then perhaps it is that you have neglected the heart work, which is the hardest work to do. And we need to return back to having our eyes fixed upon him. Verses 20, 21 and 23 really set before us the things the Jews did, who they think that they are. They're only teachers of others. They don't do what they tell others to do. They're practicing hypocrisy. We covered this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So really the only question then is to consider is that do you approve of what he approves of? Do you do, you do that which you condemn in others? It's interesting to me how many believers condemn homosexual behavior, relationships, and then yet frequently watch shows and movies where it is celebrated and regularly practiced as if it's no big deal. It's amazing to me how many people are always encouraging others to get to church yet frequently miss themselves. It's amazing to me how many people, you know, this is tax season, how many people are so mad that the rich seem to use and exploit all these tax loopholes and yet they fudge their own numbers. This is hypocrisy. This is not the way of the Christian. Is, our ways are not the ways of the world. I mean, and this is why hypocrisy stings so bad. It's because to a degree, again, we're all guilty of it. None of us lives perfectly. None of, none of our living is consistently in line with our confession, our profession of faith. And i got to tell you what, that's the reason why the gospel is such good news. That's why I continue to preach it to myself. You know how many times like, I'm like, 
why do people, why did, why did that person do that? They shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I did that last week. Why can't so-and-so be more patient? Why do they got to be so critical? Oh my goodness, I'm such a critical person. And that's what makes the gospel such good news. Because to a degree, this is describing all of us. But may, but may we not just settle into being, oh, that's just who I am. That's just, the way, that's just the way that I am. I can't help but be anything else. No, if you were in Christ, you can help being something else. In fact, the scriptures say that he helps you be something else, someone else, namely him. You should realize, beloved, that he is forming Christ in you. and He is, he is preparing you for eternal glory. And yeah, we struggle with all these things, but can, can, we, can we put our hand to the plow and can we work hard? And for the sake of not having God's name blaspheme among us, think of all of the, the Christian controversies and things that occur while the world looks upon the church and goes, no way would I want any part of that. Like, may that never come out of us. That we would seek to, with all humility, follow Christ, fix our eyes upon Christ, and be like him in every season. Parents, think about the way, the example that you set to your children. You know, kids, the saying, there's more that is caught than taught, they're looking, they're watching, testifying right here. <laughs> Parents, how are you modeling what you say you believe? Oh, we love Jesus. We go to church. Be patient. Be kind. You too. Be patient with each other. Speak kindly to each other. Stop pulling your sister's hair. Stop taking your brother's stuff. And yet that they turn around and they go, well, where do you think I learned that? Dad. Mom. Yeah, I mean, we have our sinful nature, but, you know, we're setting examples for our children. Parents, are you, how hypocritical are you, are, are you and are you attending to the own, your own spiritual formation of your soul? He would say specifically in verse 22, and I just want to draw attention to this briefly. There's really a lot here. Um, but you who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, idol, abhor idols, do you rob temples? Um, he's he, specifically in 22b. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? Uh, he what he has in mind there is that you who hate idolatry, do you rob God of His glory? Do you rob temples? The temple is a place where God's glory dwelled. You hate idolatry. What is idolatry? Fundamentally, it's robbing God of the glory that's due to Him. Are you 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 say that you hate idolatry? Things that rob God of his glory. And yet you're doing that. You rob his temple. You don't want him to be glorified. There's no room for the glory of God in your life. Why? Because you're consumed with your own glory. My life must be about me being made much of. I'm telling you, the person who sees himself as a teacher of others, who sits in this position, superiority, they must not only be in a position of authority and superiority, but everyone else must acknowledge it and confess it 
and give to them the praise and the glory and the honor that they are due. And if they don't get it from you, they will do whatever it takes to get it. There's no room for the glory of God in their lives and in their heart. May that never be true of us. That we would seek first his glory above all things. The Jews thought that they were guides to the blind, lights in the dark, but they were really glory thieves, wanting it all for themselves. And ultimately, they bring dishonor to God, as he would say in verse 23. You who boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law. You know what is right. You condemn others when they, when they do what is wrong, and yet you do the same thing. And you're dishonoring God. And again, Paul knew this. I can imagine him preaching this from his heart because this was him doing this for so long of his life. And then he would say, for as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among you, among the Gentiles because of you. And this is the quote taken from Isaiah 52.5 or from Ezekiel 36. Both of them say a similar thing. Isaiah 52.5, Ezekiel 36.20 in 23, the context is that the Jews were going into exile for what they had done, the sins that they had committed, and God's name was down being ridiculed among the nations. Look at your God. Look what he's done to you. How strong and how powerful is he? In reality, God was just judging them in a way that he said he would. If they fell into sin and disobedience, which they did, which he told them they would. And so God's name was blasphemed among the nations. G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson say, says Israel's disobedience in the past has been repeated in the present. Just as Israel once brought shame upon God and its guilt and exile, so now Israel dishonors God by its disobedience. As was true of Israel in the past, they themselves are in need of redemption by the true servant of the Lord, whom Paul identifies as Jesus the Christ. They need redemption, just like any other people. He's already made the case that um, God shows no partiality. And really, he's, he's heaped up their condemnation upon them because of what they had and the, and the degree of which God has revealed himself to that nation and what they did with it and squandering that wonderful truth away. May we never be like them and cause God's name to be blasphemed among anyone because of the way that we live. As we are considering these things and beginning to move towards our time of communion together and celebrate what it is that Christ has done for us and his goodness and his faithfulness to us. It's the hard work of addressing the condition of the heart. The ways that we're hypocritical, the ways that we're inconsistent with our confession of faith. The, the ways that we have neglected, perhaps, even addressing our own spiritual formation and if, whether or not that's truly a priority to us. 
Israel was clean in their own eyes, but they were never washed of their filth. We come to the table and we're reminded that there's only washing from our filth from one place, and that's from the cross, from what Christ has done for us. And so that's why communion time is this wonderful time of worship and celebration. This is a place for us to come and that we go, man, I'm saved not by my own goodness, not by my own works, but by the work of Christ, by, justified by faith and by faith alone. And so I worship him in that. I, I, I rest myself in the work of Christ. But it's also the opportunity where I come to the table and I'm, I'm holding these elements and I'm viewing them and my mind is specifically drawn to what it is that Christ has done for me, a rebellious sinner. And I'm mindful of the fact that as I examine myself, that I still do things that are more consistent with the old nature. And I confess those things to him and, 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 I, and I rest myself in the assurance of the pardon that he offers me. But I still then pray and ask for his help to work in my life that which is pleasing to him and cultivating the things that are necessary to live a life that is honoring to him among those that he has placed around me. You know, those, look, those people who are around me look at my life, can they truly say that my desire, that this world is not my home? My desire is to be with him and to be like him. And do I, do I address that with humility, um, weakness, and trembling as I, as I look to him? And so the communion time is a time for us to do to all of that. To be humble, to be aware of our sin and God's grace, to come in need, to come in prayer, and to rejoice in him and enjoy him and what he has done for us and what he's given to us now. So this time is for the believer. If you're here visiting today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, we do invite for you to invite you to partake of the table with us. If you don't know Christ, then don't partake. Just consider, think about um, your standing with God. And if you how, you, how do you think that you're going to, uh, you know, are you made right with him and how do you think that is? And are you trying to work and attain your salvation and righteousness or are you trusting in the work of Christ? So the elements are on the table behind us, behind you guys. You can grab those and return back to your seat for some time of prayer and then we'll partake of communion together here shortly.